as you're aware, this morning we're continuing on uh, in our series, Are You For Real? Honest Answers to Tough Questions. And as Dave has already said this morning, we're looking at probably the toughest question going. But didn't God make me gay? And the reason why it's a tough question is because for many people it's so painful. Because this question of identity and sexuality for many people has led to so much pain. And man, I, I, that pain is close to home for so many people. For my family, it's close to home. Many people in my family really struggle with this issue and it's caused hurt and it's caused suffering and I'm pretty sure nearly everyone here would have a friend or a colleague or a family member who would identify with being homosexual or is in a same-sex relationship. Uh, Up until recently, I worked at St. Vincent's Hospital in the city and St. Vincent's is in Darlinghurst and Darlinghurst is probably the center of the largest, one of the largest gay communities uh, in our whole country, if not in the Southern Hemisphere. And so many of my colleagues and people that I was working with uh, were gay or lesbian and in same-sex relationships. And I'm sure you can understand, you know, you work with these people, you get to know, you get to have them as your friends. And they're lovely people. And often people that I would sort of consider more lovely than myself. And so the question is, how could... How could this be right? I mean, how could we be judgmental and condemn these lovely people? Maybe it's even closer to home for you this morning. Maybe this is your question. And one of the reasons why Christianity seems repulsive to you is because your question is, but didn't God make me gay? More than that, maybe you've been hurt, and maybe you've been hurt specifically by Christians. You've heard that Christians believe sex is for marriage, and marriage is between a man and a woman, and it seems so antiquated and narrow-minded and hateful. I mean, how can you say you stand for love. You seem to stand against love. And maybe you've got real questions. You, you believe in a sovereign God. You feel a deep sense of attraction to people of the same sex. And therefore, God have, must have made me this way. And why would God want me to suppress my identity? You know, to be, pretend to be someone I'm not. Maybe you've been hurt by others and maybe you've been stigmatized and shamed and rejected and traumatized. And this topic carries a lot of pain and grief for you. Well, I just want to get something right up front this morning and um, that's that this morning you're not going to hear from an expert. Uh, I'm not an expert on this topic. It's not a personal struggle of mine. And to be, to, to be more honest, you know, I've not done a very good job in the past of loving people who struggle with this, particularly within the context of my own family. 
But I do know Jesus. And what I want to offer to you this morning is to be a friend on a journey to get to know him. And, uh, you know, I want to be up front. I have an agenda. I want to convince you this morning, if this is your one objection to, to following Jesus, to become a Christian, I want you to see it's true. I want you to see that Jesus is so good. And so I want to ask you this morning, I want for all of us to pause and look beyond the failings of others like me and to look at how the Bible helps us see the answer to this question. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read a a few verses from Mark chapter 8, verse 34, and then I'm going to pray and uh, get stuck into uh, this, this question. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, and this is Jesus speaking. And it says in Mark chapter, 30, uh, chapter 8, verse 34, it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me pray. Lord, this morning, I just ask for grace. Lord, we need you. We need to see you, Lamb of God, in our place. And I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit amongst us this morning and open our eyes to see the truth of your word. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, but didn't God make me gay? What's my answer to that question? Well, in short, my answer is yes and no. Yes, in a broken world, a sovereign God may have allowed you to be born with exclusive same-sex attraction. But no, that's not your identity. And no, that's not God's purpose for your life. Yes and no. And simply put, that's really the way I'm going to break up this question uh, with those two points. Yes, a sovereign God in a broken world may have allowed you to be born with exclusive same-sex attraction, but no, that's not how he views you. That's not how he sees your identity. And no, that's not his purpose for your life. So two points. Yes, but no, that's not your identity. And yes, but no, that's not God's purpose for you. Let's jump in and look at point one. Yes, but no, that's not your identity. Um, Why do we need to start with looking at identity? Uh, I think really... It's key to the question. But God made me gay, didn't he? 
I mean, isn't this who I am? Isn't this core to my identity? You know, I want to begin looking at this uh, point uh, with a picture. And um, you should see it uh, come up on your screen. And uh, this picture here is actually, believe it or not, a picture of the Sydney Opera House. Uh, Sydney Opera House on September 24th, 2009. And I think if you really squint and look really, really hard, you might even barely see the sails uh, coming up from the top of the Sydney Opera House. And the reason is, if any of you remember back to 2009, I mean, it's crazy, I think it was that long ago, 2009, is we had this huge uh, dust storm that came through and swept through not only Sydney, but uh, the whole east coast of Australia, stirred up from central Australia. In fact, this dust storm stretched for 3,450 kilometers. It came from the, the top of, a stretch from the top of uh, Cape York Peninsula all the way down to Canberra. You know, uh, the scientists estimated that every hour, this dust storm was casting 75,000 tons of dirt into the ocean. Every hour while it passed over Sydney. And many of you would, re- would remember waking up on September 24, 2009 to discover like this Mars-like, crazy, surreal world uh, because this dust storm had hit Sydney. Um, why am I bringing this up? Well, Claire Smith, in one of her books, points out that our culture is really just like the dust that covered Sydney on September 24th, 2009. You know, just like the dust kind of covered and settled on everything in our city, we live so immersed in our culture that sometimes it's nearly impossible to see it. It's just like that red dust that on that morning of September 24th just covered Absolutely everything. Well, when it comes to thinking about the question of identity, if I were to ask you this question, how would you answer it? If I was to ask you the question, who are you? What would you say? If someone was to come up and ask you, who are you? You know, think about how you'd answer that. You might want to talk about your ethnicity. You might want to say um, Aussie or Chinese or African or something like that. You might want to talk about your beliefs, like I'm an atheist or agnostic or I'm a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian. Um, You might want to talk about your career and your achievements, like I'm a plumber or I'm a physio, I'm a doctor or I'm a teacher and... You might want to even talk about your family, like I'm a mom or a dad or a grandpa or a grandma or an auntie or an uncle. You might even want to talk about your sexuality. I'm gay or I'm lesbian or I'm straight or I'm bisexual. What's my point this morning? Well, when it comes to thinking about our culture, it's kind of like that dust that covers everything. Because our culture teaches us and assumes that our identity is mainly something that you desire or choose. Our culture says, if you want to be or discover who you are, look inside yourself. Think about your deepest desires and dreams. And then, once you discover those, follow them. And that's how you'll find yourself. You can be whoever you want to be. But you must follow your deep desires and dreams in order to discover yourself. That's what our culture teaches. Our culture says, if you want to know who you are, 
Take a look inside, and that's where you'll find you. What do you believe? There you are. What do you desire? There you are. What have you achieved? That's you right there. Well, today we're going to be looking at something very different, and that's what the Bible teaches about identity. And in order to do that, we're going to turn to the very opening uh, chapters of the Bible, and I'm going to look at a a few quick verses from Genesis uh, chapters 1, uh, 2, and 3. We're not going to look at all of that, so don't panic. Uh, We're just going to look at a, a handful of short verses from them to see what the Bible teaches. And the main thing the Bible teaches about our identity is that identity is not based on what we believe, desire, or achieve. In fact, our identity has nothing to do with those things. But our identity is found in who made us. That's where our our identity comes from. So if you open up at Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read you just a couple of verses, uh, verse 26 and 27. Verse 26 of chapter 1 says this, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You see, the Bible here clearly teaches that all people are precious to God. Where do we get that? Because he made all people in his image. Regardless of creed, regardless of religion, whether you're Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your sexuality, whether you're gay, straight, bisexual, transgender, or history, whether you're elderly or unborn, whether you're demented or high-functioning, whether you're employed or unemployed, whether you're a convicted felon or a law-abiding citizen, whether you're a refugee or high court judge, whether you're bankrupt or a billionaire, all people are made in God's image and therefore are precious to Him. All people are equally worthy of dignity and respect in the sight of God. Why? Because all people were made by Him. You see, you tend not to hear Christians describe themselves as being a gay Christian or a CEO Christian or an African Christian or a wealthy Christian even. I mean, why? Have you ever thought about that? Why? And that's because Christians believe that the greatest thing that you can say about them is that they're made in the image of God. More than that, that they're known and loved by Jesus Christ. And so Christians don't want to put anything above that as being more significant to their identity and how they understand who they are. Secondly, um, and I've already mentioned it, as a Christian, we also find worth in the truth that through faith, we're adopted into God's family. So sexuality is not our defining feature, but made by God in His image, is. You see, that's the first point that the Bible teaches. Our identity is not based on what we believe, desire, or achieve, but on who made us. Secondly, the Bible also teaches that we're not independent beings that are free to live how we please. But it teaches quite clearly in these two verses that God is our maker 
and our owner and rightfully rules over us. Uh, Read with me again that verse, verse 27. It says, So God created man in his own image. God created man. You see, our culture believes that we're independent and that we're self-sufficient. We call the shots in our own lives. I'm the boss of me. I choose how I want to live. I can be whatever I damn like. As long as I don't harm anyone else. The no harm principle. More than that, as we've already said, you become yourself when you're true to your deepest desires and dreams. Identity is about what you feel on the inside. But the Bible teaches something very different. And that is that we were made by God, that we're his property. That our very lives are not only owned by him, but also more than that, sustained by him as well. God is the landlord. We are the tenants. God is the king. We are his subjects. God is the potter. We are the clay. God is the painter. We are the painting. So not only were we made by God in his image and therefore precious to him, not only is he our owner and therefore we're not independent, but he rightfully rules over us. But thirdly, we see from the next chapter that our ancestors, in fact, once enjoyed this kind of like really intimate and deep relationship with God. If we turn over the page in your Bible and look at Genesis chapter 2, we'll um, see something of that. Um, but before, as you're turning over there, um, and as you find that chapter 2 in, in your Bibles, I just want you to look at another picture um, up on the screen. And um, that picture is from a recent trip that Charlotte and I did to um, Washington, D.C. This is a painting by uh, the famous painter Leonardo da Vinci. It's uh, of Geneva da Vinci. Um, and uh, it's a famous painting. And so uh, you see thousands and thousands of people every year flock to the National Art Gallery of the USA to see this painting hung. But if you look at the painting, I don't know about you, but it's, not, it's actually really small and it's not really exciting as a painting. You know, it's just this kind of, it's kind of slightly depressed-looking lady. And, um, but you'll see all these people crowded around, you know, with their cameras out trying to get a photo in. And so, you know, I got in and got, got my photo and, and everything. And why, why, do we, why do we do that? What's the fascination? It's with the artist who painted it, really. It's that this was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And I kind of found myself looking at this painting and kind of imagining, what would it be like to meet Leonardo da Vinci? You know, that famous uh, painter and, and famous uh, figure from history. Well, we're going to look at something even greater than an even greater question I want us to think about this morning. What would it be like to meet your maker, the artist who painted you? What would it be like to meet God himself? You know, in this uh, couple of verses we're going to read, we read that the first people did know their maker and they walked with him in intimate relationship. Read with me uh, chapter 2, verses 15 uh, through to 18. It says, it says the following. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, 
You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. If you jump down to verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man... He made into a woman and brought her to the man. You know, it's this picture of intimate relationship that our ancestors once walked in with God. You see lots of different things about that relationship. In verse 16, it says that God speaks directly to them. In verse 17, it says that God made an agreement with them about what they're allowed to do and not. In verse 18, you see this beautiful picture of God caring for them. And in verses 15 and 21, you see God even walking alongside with them. Yeah, our ancestors once walked in intimate relationship with their maker. But that relationship with God was broken by our rebellion. Um, Just uh, again, uh, just after this passage, and, and most of you will know the story, um, God says, don't eat of this tree, but, but the serpent comes and deceives the man and his wife, and they disobey God, and they don't listen to God. And the fruit of that is in chapter 3, verse 9, it says the following. It says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice the things that suddenly mark their relationship with God. Fear, I was afraid. Shame, I was naked. Hiding, so I hid myself. It's immediately uh, after this, in the following verses, it's the first instance of blame shifting to a wife as he blames his wife for everything that's just happened. It's this picture of, of broken relationship, not only with God, but suddenly broken relationship with God and with others as well. You see, our relationship with God and with others is now broken. You don't need me to tell, tell you that. I mean, just switch on the TV and you'll see that the world is a broken place. Refugees, millions of them. People dying every day in Syria and Aleppo and places around the world. Car bombings and suicide attacks and not just problems out there, but also problems right here with us as well. You know, if you're honest, and if I'm honest we are deeply broken as well. And we sin against others all the time. We sin by taking things from others. We literally sometimes at work take property or time or money that isn't rightfully ours. We sin by taking dignity and respect away from others as well. Dignity and respect that they deserve. That isn't ours to take. We take things, but not just take things, we say things. We say hurtful things to people. 
We say things that we immediately wish we could take it right back again. We don't just sin against people in the things we say. We also sin against people in the things that we should have said but we never did. And lastly, we sin by things we do as well. We do things that we're deeply ashamed of. The world is broken. We are broken. And the root of our brokenness is that we've refused to live accordingly with the tenancy agreement of our landlord, our Father in heaven. We've rejected intimate relationship with him. And so the solution to our brokenness, it's not more money. It's not a relationship or a marriage or a career. It's none of these things. It's to be right back in the garden, walking in intimate relationship with him. Well, who am I? According to the Bible, you're God's creation. God's child made in his image. But didn't God make me gay? Yes, but no. Yes, a sovereign God may have allowed you to be born with exclusive same-sex attraction, but no, that's not your identity. According to the Bible, our desires are not what defines us. We are God's precious creations, but we're living estranged from him. And that brings me to our second point. Yes, but no, that's not God's purpose for you. You see, what the Bible teaches about our identity and broken relationship with our maker leads us on to thinking about our purpose. Um, And I think it's really integral to the question. You know, if God made me gay and I feel this way, Surely God's purpose for me is to live it out, to be true to myself, to live in light of that. Let me ask you another question. If I asked you, what's your purpose in life? How would you answer that question? Just think about that. What's your purpose? Why are you here? Some of you might say that It's to be a great employee or to build a successful career. Some of you might say something different, like it's about being a great parent or about being a great grandparent. You see, our culture, purpose is about being true to your innermost desires. It's about following what your heart's desire and dreams are. It's to be true to yourself. And as I said, it's really the heart of the question. If you're born with some sort of desire, for instance, same-sex attraction, Surely I find myself and my purpose by living it out. So surely if God's sovereignty, he allowed for me to be made this way, then surely that's his purpose and his plan for me. But the Bible says something very different. The Bible says that God's purpose for your life, the reason why you're in the job that you're in, the reason why you're part of the family that you're a part of, It's not to be a great employee. It's not to be a great mother or father. The reason why he's got you in the neighborhood that you're living in right now is that you might know him. That's his purpose for your life. To come back 
to knowing him. Let's pick up on our story where we left it off earlier, and that, that's that people are made in God's image, but who live in this broken world in relationship with him and in relationship with other people. But our, our rebellion against God, according to the Bible, doesn't, doesn't just leave us simply feeling broken. It actually places us on a collision course with the justice of God. You see, the Bible teaches very clearly that God is just. And justice of God means that he can't leave wrongs unpunished. You know, you might imagine a security guard uh, looking out across the street and seeing some you know, shadowy figure uh, beating up a small child. You know, justice demands that if that person witnesses that wrong, he must intervene. He must hold that person account for their wrongs. And so we meet the God of perfect justice. A God who can't leave our rebellion unpunished. And so the Bible teaches that the coming of Jesus, in fact, was a rescue mission. It was God coming to save us from himself. He sends his son. And so we sing at Christmas that's just passed. Who would have dreamed and ever foreseen that we would hold God himself in our hands? A rescue mission. And we see the Son come and model the perfect life that we should have lived. And we see the Son coming with one purpose, and that is to make peace with God for us. You see, uh, Jesus comes and he has this perfect, intimate relationship with God. You know, no other person in all of history has lived in sync with God like Jesus. It's perfect in fulfillment and perfect in joy in God. And notice something very important to our discussion this morning, and that is without ever being in sexual relationship. Jesus lived his life as a celibate single man. Jesus perfectly displays self-denial for the glory of God. He leaves his throne in heaven, and he lives his life as a single man. He endures the wrath finally of God in our place. Jesus denies his own rights to embrace the will of God for our salvation. Now, I want us to... Uh, turn back now towards the passage that we uh, read earlier in Mark chapter 8. And um, I'm going to read a a few verses just before um, to paint a picture of of what's been happening as we move to answer this final question. Um, Jesus has been uh, looking at the question of who he is with his disciples. And he asks his disciples a question, uh, who do people say I am? And people rattle off all these different things. Oh, some say you're a prophet, some say you're a teacher. And um, Jesus asks him another question. He says, but who do you say I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, you're the Christ, you're the promised king, you're the, you're the one that we've been waiting for. Why don't you uh, read with me uh, verse 31. And Jesus, after telling them, after hearing what uh, Peter said about who he is, It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, Jesus explains what his mission is, why he's come, and and Peter can't believe what Jesus has come to do. So he tries to tell him off. 
Let me ask you a question. Jesus has said that he's come to die in order to save us. How do you react to that message? That he is God come to take your place. Well, Jesus would go on to say many other times that he'd come. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verses 45, Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom of many. See, Jesus' purpose was, was singular. Jesus had come to live the perfect life that we've never lived with God. More than that, he came to hang on that cross, bearing the punishment that we deserve for all our wrongs, all the things that we've said that we shouldn't have, all the things that we haven't said that we ought to, all the things that we've taken from others, all the things that we've done that we're ashamed of. Jesus took that in full as he hung on the cross, that we might have true satisfaction once more with God. That genuine satisfaction might be possible. Let me ask you a question. If you're honest, are you satisfied with your life at this moment? Honestly. You know, the difficulty with living life following your deepest desires and dreams is that all you'll find in the end is disappointment. And the reason is that if you manage to achieve all your desires and dreams, you'll find in the end it wasn't enough. And you'll be disappointed with dissatisfaction. But if you fail to achieve all your desires and dreams, you'll be crushed because you haven't lived up to your own expectations. You see, no relationship, no material possession, no career can fill the void within you. You were made to know God and enjoy relationship with him. And this is what Jesus came to achieve in John 10. He says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. In John 4, he talks about how anyone who comes and trusts in me will never, ever thirst again. What does he mean by that? He means that he's come to fulfill your heart's deepest desires, to walk once more with God. You know, the Bible also teaches some very difficult truths. The Bible teaches that the only place for sexual expression is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Jesus would come to reveal by his life that, that marriage is meant to be this kind of living sermon illustration about what Christ has done for the church. But, but here's the truth. If If you're a single or exclusively same-sex attracted Christian, that's a hard truth to hear. But it's not a crushing blow. Why? Well, because firstly, Jesus' life shows us that sexual expression is not necessary to live a life perfectly fulfilled and and pleasing to God. That's the life he lived. But secondly, because the Bible teaches that no relationship can ever satisfy our true heart's desire. Only God can. 
You see, Jesus came to bring us back to the garden, back to relationship with God. But Jesus does more than simply provide a great example and pay for our wrongs against God. He also makes a call upon our lives as well. Why don't we turn uh, finally to the passage that we looked at this morning as we started. Our culture says, be true to yourself. Follow your desires and dreams. But here's what Jesus says. Mark chapter 34, uh, chapter 8, verse 34. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus has come to show us the way back to God. Our culture says, be true to yourself. Follow your desires and dreams and there you'll find yourself. Jesus says the very opposite. He says, if you want to save your life, lose it. Deny yourself. It's a radical call that means denying our wants and desires and trusting in the message of the cross that Jesus paid it all for you and following him. You know, if you continue to live for your own desires, you'll lose your life. You'll be crushed by disappointment as you either fail to achieve the things you desire or your desires fail to satisfy you. No achievement will ever seem to fully justify your existence or give the sense of worth that you crave. You will ultimately find yourself standing before God as his enemy, estranged from him. But if you lose your life for Jesus, paradoxically, you'll find it. Because in Following Jesus, what you will find is your maker. You will find God. You'll find that his love for you is so secure because it isn't based on your achievements, but on the fact that he made you. You'll find that he's worthy of a trust because he's good. More than that, you'll find that you can trust him to ask you to lay down your life because he has already laid down his life for you. You'll find in him that satisfaction is guaranteed. Because you will find your maker. Well, how will you respond to the call? I think um, as we close, there's three different types of people that I just wanted to address. And the first is maybe someone who's sitting here who's a Christian, you're following Jesus, but this is a real struggle for you. And um, I just wanted to encourage you. Let us as your family here at this church help carry your burden. We would love to create a place where you can feel free to share that burden with us and you might fear that what you'll find is rejection, but I want to tell you that what you'll find is encouragement and support. You'll find someone willing to help. Um, if that's you, we'd love for you to come and speak to one of the pastoral team or your group leader. And I just wanted to rec- recommend a book to you that's fantastic uh, called Satisfaction Guaranteed, A Future and a Hope for Same-Sex Attracted Christians. This is the story of two guys who are really wrestling with this stuff and what the Bible teaches. And it's a fantastic, practical, wise book. Let me uh, encourage you, if, if you're interested in getting a copy of that, come and speak to me and um, I'll put you uh, that in your hands. Uh, 
Secondly, maybe you're following, uh, you're not following Jesus, but you're coming here this morning with lots of questions. And uh, I just want to invite you, why don't you come and start a conversation? Start a conversation about Jesus and following him and what that means and what that might look like for you. We would love to be a part of that. Come and grab uh, one of uh, myself or one of the pastoral team or someone who brought you along uh, after the message. We'd love to begin a conversation with you about Jesus. I want to invite you along to um, this course here, Introducing Jesus Dinner. Um, It's coming up uh, next month. Uh, This is a great opportunity for anyone who has questions and interested in finding more about Jesus to have their questions answered and to really uh, nut down on what it means to follow him. But the third type of person that I want to address is maybe you're ready to respond right now. Maybe you've heard the call of the cross and you're thinking, that's what I want to do. I just want to encourage you, come and speak to someone. The message of the cross is quite simple. Repent and believe and you'll be saved. Jesus calls you to ask for forgiveness for the way you've been living and to make him your king and give your life to following him. And what you'll find is satisfaction guaranteed. Um, Well, In closing, but didn't God make me gay? Yes, but no. Yes, in a broken world, a sovereign God may have allowed you to be born with exclusive same-sex desires, yes. But no, that is not predominantly how God views you. And no, that is not his ultimate purpose for your life. Your identity and worth doesn't come from any of your desires or achievements God views you as his precious child simply due to the fact that he made you in his image. He's demonstrated his love for you in sending of his son and he's calling you to deny yourself and follow him. The call that is satisfaction guaranteed. I'm going to ask the band to come up um, to close now with our final song. And uh, as they do that, I'm going to go, uh, close by praying and I want to pray a few verses from a beautiful psalm. Um, on this topic. So why don't you close your eyes and pray with me as we give thanks to the God whose love knows no end. Psalm 118 says, I give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in princes. So give thanks to the Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. Lord, we thank you that though all other people may fail us, your steadfast love endures forever. You and you alone will never fail us. You and you alone are always with us. Lord, I do just pray this morning for anyone who has this issue as a personal issue. Lord, may they know your steadfast love. May they know that though they fear rejection, what they find in you is embrace. 
though they've been disappointed by many in the past, what they find in you is steadfast love that endures forever. What they find in you is satisfaction guaranteed. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.